Hello, thank you for joining again, this time for episode four of our mini podcast series, which looks at crypto recovery. I am Chris Pease, and as ever, joined by Megan Elms and James Drury. Hello, both of you. This episode, we're going to be focusing on pursuing persons unknown. And the reason that that's relevant, of course, to crypto recovery is because of the way digital assets are owned. And we'll come on to that in a minute. But going back to our chain swap case, which has been the subject of, of a previous episode, that demonstrates that when you're dealing with trying to recover assets from a hacker, then obviously you tend to start off not knowing who that person is. And indeed, revealing their identity can often be the sort of pivotal part of the case. So, James, I think a lot of people would often make the mistake of saying that crypto ownership or digital asset ownership is anonymous. I would much prefer to say that it's pseudonymous because a wallet is always owned by somebody and that person sits behind that wallet and all the transactions that the wallet enters into is, is effectively being done by that person who owns it. And when you find out who owns the wallet, you find out who's responsible for all of those transactions. What more can you tell us about the ownership of these wallets and how that sort of interacts with other digital footprints? Yeah, I think I struggle to say pseudonymous, so I'll let Chris say it. But I think that is right. And I think people, again, try and overly complicate matters. The reality for us is investigators or people who are trying to trace assets is you're still trying to find that link back to an exchange where you can then seek to issue disclosure orders or freezing orders. So all of these wallets and you could have as many as you want, they all leave a digital footprint. And I think if you just look at NFTs, which is obviously the huge buzzword of the last probably year, and you look at environments like Twitter and Discord and Telegram, all these big social media platforms within the crypto ecosystem and space, you're seeing NFTs now being deployed as their profile picture, their PFPs. So with that, these all leave kind of these digital cookies. They have a breadcrumbs that you can follow if you're trying to piece together who that may be. So whilst, yes, you may have lots of wallet addresses who may instigate hacks some of them will interact with another wallet at some stage which will then have to interact with either a mixer or an exchange and that's where we're trying to come into it i know that's oversimplifying it but yes you don't know who may be behind it or they may be sitting on whatever jurisdiction or location but there is always hope and of course if you know or you have reason to believe that numerous wallets are all owned by the same person then of course you find out the owner of one of those wallets and you would find out the owner of all of those wallets, which is incredibly important when you're tracking or, or tracing tokens that have been transferred through numerous wallets before they get, for example, to an off-ramp. Yeah, and the good, the good thing about the NFT thing is that it isn't just JPEGs, as a lot of people like to, to think, but they are non-fungible, so they are one of one generally, which means that if you have someone who has that profile picture on some of their social media, there is only one of them. So it's quite easy to be able to go in find out who that is it may take a bit of sifting through a collection but you're now seeing things like twitter who are allowing those profile pictures to be verified within twitter so then it takes you directly to that wallet so this is all kind of moving in this digital world this digital footprint is happening right in front of us we're going to see it more and more as meta and facebook bring in the metaverse and ecosystems all kind of meet so i think that kind of anonymity reduces a bit more so megan in our chain swap case you know the starting point for the client was being hacked, knew that the tokens that had been misappropriated had gone to two wallets, and 
we had very good reason to believe that those two wallets were owned by the same person because both had been involved in the same hack. Now, you have those wallet addresses, but you don't have much more to go on. So what do you do? Can you claim in that situation? Can you, for example, let's say you do follow those tokens like we were able to to certain exchanges. How do you go about seeking, you know, your more traditional relief remedies, you know, disclosure orders, injunctions? How do you go about getting that from the court when you don't even know who it is that you're, you're going after? Well, this is a framework that's been set up long before crypto became popular. There have been cases, well, we focused on the cases in the English courts, but I'm sure there's been cases worldwide where this circumstance has arisen. So when we started moving more towards emails, obviously, you could have your email account hacked. You wouldn't necessarily know who did that. So the courts have been dealing with these issues for quite a long time. And they have built a framework already as to circumstances in which they will allow a claim to proceed, even though you don't know the identity, as in the name and where the physical address of the person that you're trying to bring a claim against. And the fundamental principles that this is kind of based on is ensuring that you can adequately identify the person who has committed the wrongdoing or whatever the nature of the claim might be. You can put them in a class of individual that separates them from other people. So while they might not be definable by name, they are definable in a certain capacity. So in our Chainswap case, we had wallet addresses that we believe were owned by the hackers. We had an email address that we believe was owned by the hackers. And these were all defining characteristics, which meant that we were able to bring a claim in the court against them. The second part of this test is the courts have recently reiterated the importance of service and the importance of being able to bring your claim and whatever action you are taking to the attention of the person who that action is against. So in our case, we had an email address, which meant that we were able to send the documents and the court was happy that that would be likely to bring our claim to their attention so that if they wanted to, they could engage and come and defend that claim. Another route we had, which was quite a novel route as far as I'm aware for dealing with service is without going back into the background of the chain swap case in too much detail we believed we had traced tokens to a Croatian exchange that we suspected had KYC for the hackers so because we thought this exchange had potentially a physical address almost certainly an email address for the hackers we asked the court whether they would be happy with us forwarding documents to the exchange with a request that they in turn forward it on to the owner of the wallet address and at this stage we weren't asking the exchange to give us those details so that we could send it directly it was this kind of third party route just just use this post box in that sense absolutely and the court was also happy with that. So we had ticked both of those boxes. We had been able to identify characteristics that meant our defendants were sufficiently identifiable. And we had been able to show that we could bring these proceedings to the attention of the hacker so that if they wanted to come and defend, they could. And I think that's that's a really crucial point, isn't it? Because we're going to have situations that crop up where it's not always obvious how we get information or how we bring the notice of certain court documents to the person 
you know, to the unknown person who's committed the wrongdoing. For example, we may not have an email address in other cases. And I suspect that the courts will be willing to get relatively creative in terms of the methods of communication that can be used. And, and if there are potentially ways to serve court documents or at least give notice of court documents and claims and injunctions via the blockchain or via wallets, then I suspect that may itself become a feasible route. And so, Chris, just something that I thought was interesting on our chain swap case. And when you talk about the way the courts are willing to, well, well, we hope they're going to be more creative in these circumstances. There was a quote that stood out to me from an English case, which I'm paraphrasing, but that the courts want to use the procedural armory that they have now to adapt to the new situations that are coming before them more and more rapidly. So while we're operating in this pre-existing legal framework, the courts are willing to kind of flex around the edges to do what they can to assist the victims of wrongdoing here. I think that was from the, the CMOP case, if I'm not mistaken. Are there different rules for service in different jurisdictions that you'd have to follow? Yes, well, there are. I mean, obviously, the rules in the BBI are very similar to those those in England. And what it really comes down to is if you are permitted to serve on an entity or individual that is or is likely to be located in another jurisdiction, you have to get the court's permission to do that. But you can be permitted to do it in ways that are not necessarily the ordinary ways of serving people outside the jurisdiction. And it's within that kind of regime where the court, we suspect, will, will get a bit more creative and be a bit more liberal in how they allow service to be affected. Like service in the metaverse? Possibly service in the metaverse. Five Probably. years' time, someone has Possibly. a plot of land in the metaverse and you can serve on that. Possibly avatar to avatar service. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see. I mean, that's all an interesting kind of, you know, discussion around how do you get in touch with people? How do you, how do you actually claim against people when you don't know who they are? Assuming you do claim, assuming you go and get an injunction, what's the utility against someone if you don't know who they are? Like, what, what, what would be the purpose of getting an injunction in those circumstances? Yeah, that's a very fair question, Chris, because I think if you have an injunction or another court order without a name on it, it does beg the question, well, you don't know who I am. Why am I going to comply with this court order? But that comes to the other reasons why it's useful. So one of the main ones that we found is we were using the injunction that we obtained to take it to exchanges and say, look, the BBI court is content that there appears to be a case that these listed wallets are linked to wrongdoing and are linked to hacks and they are frozen and the hacker, albeit we don't have his name, is not allowed to use these assets. And if he does so, he is in contempt of court. And that obviously has quite severe consequences within the jurisdiction. And this touches on something that we've discussed previously about how exchanges are generally willing to help. So if you can show them a court order, the hope is that they'll comply with it. You can't guarantee they will because it's an order from the BBI court and you may have some people that turn around and say, why would I comply with an order of the BVI court? I'm not within its jurisdiction. But it definitely helps create this dialogue with the exchanges and just kind of adds more gravitas to your case. Yeah, and, and, and at the end of the day, what you'll be doing there is you'll, you'll be providing these exchanges with a piece of paper which says these wallet numbers, that the court is satisfied for these purposes, at least in, in granting interim injunctive relief that these wallets are associated with wrongdoers and that if, if the exchange has or is asked to receive tokens from those wallets, then it should either not process those transactions or it should hold any funds it gets. So it's, you know, and you would expect in those circumstances, as you say, especially from the more reputable exchanges, that they would, they would be willing to cooperate. Um, it would certainly be the case if you're dealing with an exchange, of course, that's located in the BVI and therefore within the jurisdiction of the BVI court. But, and, and the same goes for 
any exchanges located in other jurisdictions in which a court is making a similar order. But if you look at the point you just made about exchanges interacting with those wallets and being able to see whether or not they've done anything bad or wrongdoing, if going back to what we touched on previously on Etherscan or these blockchain explorers, there is a functionality within those which allows you to flag those wallet addresses. So whether or not there's been a hack or it's subject to potentially a phishing scam, you can input that information within to Etherscan or these blockchain explorers to let people know who are engaging with that wallet address that this is what's happened. And again, we go back to the Chainswap case. On that example, the announcement from Chainswap on Twitter was hyperlinked onto the front page of Etherscan. And then within the ledger itself, you've obviously got the out being Chainswap. And then the address that it was going to, the recipient, was then called Chainswap Hacker. And so there's a title so that every person who then engaged with that wallet address, which is called Chainswap Hacker, they know there's an issue with it. So I think that you kind of got this big red flag in the, the sand, which kind of waves quite brightly to let people know that this isn't a wallet address you want to really engage with without actually doing And, and, and actually taint, taints any tokens then that come from, from exactly. these wallets. And I think, yeah, like what you were both explaining, that if you're an exchange, you're probably going to look at who it's coming from and whether or not they are legitimate. And and just one thing Megan said, which actually I want to pick up on, which is, you know, the hacker fails to comply with an injunction order that's being made against him, whether that's because he breaches the injunction itself and moves assets around, or if it's because he, for example, fails to comply with the disclosure elements to an injunction order, which of course are commonplace. Then if that hacker ends up wanting at a later stage to engage in and defend the substantive claim against him, that person is is going to be facing an uphill struggle from day one because as soon as he wants to submit some form of defence, he's already in contempt of court. And of course, you know, the claimant may then take steps to disbar him from being heard or, or, or take other contempt proceedings against him. So it, it does, I suppose, provide that advantage to the person seeking the order and certainly it puts the hacker at a disadvantage in, in that sense as well, which shouldn't be overlooked. So good to hear anyway that, you know, just because you don't necessarily know the identity of somebody who's involved in, in wrongdoing and moving proceeds of that wrongdoing around on-chain, that that doesn't prevent you going after them. And it seems the courts are really moving with the times and, and adapting traditional remedies to, to provide assistance in these circumstances, which is obviously very positive Absolutely. for everyone. Well, thank you very much for joining us for this fourth episode. Thanks very much for tuning in.